So one thing that I think is interesting, but not particularly a new insight about COVID is the way it is kind of accelerating many trends that were already in place. In particular, the students who face the greatest disadvantage, many of whom we've lost during COVID. So I think we really need to recognize that the system wasn't working particularly well for too many students. COVID has exposed uh, just how poorly it works for those students. This is where policy meets people, a Jev's Human Services podcast. I'm Kristen Rantanen. As we continue to navigate the new normal in hopefully a post-COVID world, we were curious about what things look like for a particular population, the high school student. The experiences of high school students during the pandemic were of course varied. Young people lost a lot, some lost too much. We're seeing mounting evidence that students who were struggling before the pandemic were hit hard. Some students who needed the support and safety of in-person school lost that when learning went virtual, while others who were already struggling within the traditional school paradigm due to learning differences, housing instability, and other challenges found it easier to drop out rather than pivot to virtual learning. And what about the implications for the long-term earning potential of these students, and ultimately, the labor market? The pandemic was taxing on many institutions, but the Philadelphia School District, which was already struggling, felt it quite acutely. I asked Councilperson at large, Derek Green, how he thought the Philly School District responded in this unprecedented time of crisis. The pandemic has really had a challenging dynamic for our school district. Myself being a parent with a child in the district, uh, my son's on the autism spectrum, uh, and also as someone whose mother taught in the school district for 31 years. I've seen the district up close and personal a lot of ways. Um, You know, you have children working remotely, and although young people are very adept at using technology, there's something about not having that human engagement uh, was very challenging. So that impacted young people. Uh, and parents trying to juggle working for those who are fortunate enough to work from home and also having their child to do work remotely if they were fortunate enough to have a laptop. And I do know the school district did get Chromebooks out to a lot of children. But schools that were in the private sector, they had more resources. So they were able to do things differently than schools and actually get their children back into the classroom a lot earlier than the school district of Philadelphia. So the pandemic really had a major impact on the district. It's really been a struggle for so many. I went back and looked at a lot of the reporting on the school district and the education system in general during the height of the COVID crisis. And it seemed like success and failure was school by school, child by child. Yeah, I would agree. And that's unfortunately been a dynamic in our schools for some time, even before the pandemic. I think about my son's elementary school, Houston Elementary School. He's blessed to have been able to go to Houston. My wife and I started the first autism support classroom at Houston. They have a playground and that playground was you know, funded in part by people in the community. But not every school has the resources that a Houston or some of the other schools in our city have where you have neighbors that are able to start a friends group or support a friends group or a home and school association to provide those additional resources that the school does not have. And so you find that disparity between schools and then you go into the pandemic and that just continued. And it's 
not that all neighborhoods don't have parents that care. I think in every community around the city of parents that care and want the best for their child and want to provide even more to their children. But if you're in an environment where you're a frontline or essential worker and you may not have the luxury to work remotely. So now you're working one, two, three jobs just to put food on the table for your household. So I think all neighborhoods, all communities want the best for their children. Just unfortunately, every community or neighborhood has the resources to invest in the schools when it shouldn't be that way. You should be able to get the same type of education no matter what community you live in. Uh, and it shouldn't be just based on geography or the value of real estate that you have uh, in your home. Yes, so true, so true. If you were to grade the school district's response to the pandemic, how would you grade it? I'd be quite honest, and I'm someone that uh, had a chance to teach part-time at Olney High School when I was in law school. My mother taught Olney for 26 years. Uh, I said she was in a district for 31 years. And my son has only been educated in the school district of Philadelphia. So when I think about the grade, I've been very critical on issues like asbestos, issues like the ventilation, dealing with this airborne um, virus called COVID-19 prior to the Delta or Omicron variant. But the district did get out Chromebooks to a number of young people. Uh, They worked with Comcast, with Internet Essentials to try to make sure that households had the ability to access technology. So as I try to balance all those issues and concerns, I, I go back and forth between, and I'm not sure as much distinction between a, a C minus and a D plus. One of the reasons we wanted to dig into this issue was that nationally public schools lost more than 1.1 million students last year, or 2%, versus a typical decline of just under 0.04% pre-pandemic. So dropping out of school is not a new thing, but certainly has been exacerbated by the impact of the pandemic. And that's one of the challenges that I've seen with the district for some time. You know, I've been um, an advocate for addressing the issues of homelessness, especially for young people, because you know, young people who are dealing with homelessness couch serving with friends, going to one school to another. Many don't have that type of stable environment if you're a homeless child or a child in the foster care system. So I think having re- resources throughout the district that can that's more attuned to the issue of children who are foster children, children who deal with homelessness, children dealing with other type of issues or challenges that they're not quite um, ready to deal with. And how do we provide those type of supports throughout the district so we can help young people and help teachers and other educators identify when a child may be indicating certain characteristics or actions or make certain statements that may precipitate them leaving school? How do we provide some supports around them? And I think that's something that we need to do because if we don't, those young people who just leave school are not going to have all of the, the skills they need to get a, a job or maybe go to college. And then ultimately, that's going to impact us as a city. So we need to make that investment at the early end from a prevention perspective so we're not making a greater expense on the back end because of the impact. I grew up like all over West Philly, South Philly. I've been 
living everywhere. My mom, she just ups and goes and moves. And I attended a lot of schools growing up, a lot of schools. This is Karima. Karima's 20 years old. But with me, like, I'm a slow learner. Like, I, the way I learn is slower than regular people because I'm, I'm autistic. So I have autistic um, traits, like stuff from my dad's side of the family. So it's like, I can't really grab, grab stuff on the computer, trying to read and all of that. It was just like, no, it's not for me. I, re I like one-on-one -on -one learning, like where you can sit next to me and then explain it to me and then I could do it like that. But it wasn't like that. Yeah, learning on the computer is not the ideal for lots and lots of people. There are lots of reasons why people need to be in a classroom. That's the type of work that I need because I can't just function and try to do it on my own, especially because I can't really read. So it's harder for me sometimes. So it was really different. It made it hard for me to uh, like focus and concentrate. Cause it's like, they had us on the computer, they'll give us assignments, but they won't explain it. So to me, it was like, how you gonna give me an assignment and expect me to do it? And I don't even know where I'm supposed to start. So it was like one of them type situations. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to go through with it. I didn't want to do it. And that was just that. So I just, I just stopped doing it. I just stopped doing it. So one thing that I think is interesting, but not particularly a new insight about COVID is the way it is kind of accelerating many trends that were already in place. This is Chauncey Lennon, Vice President of Learning and Work at the Lumina Foundation. Lumina partners with community organizers, policymakers, and individuals to rethink how and where learning occurs. When it comes to the question of what school is for, what is K-12 for, part of that answer is going on to a successful uh, career, family-sustaining middle-class career. We're seeing this challenge of students just walking away, right? Maybe they were loosely attached to begin with, but now with all the complexity and all the challenges that COVID creates, it is just one more reason to say this isn't worth my time. We are, I think, grappling with the reality that the system was in many sense out of date with the lives and the economy we have today, in particular the students who face the greatest disadvantage, many of whom we've lost during COVID. So I think we really need to recognize that the system wasn't working particularly well for too many students. COVID has exposed uh, just how poorly it works for those students. So tell me about the students that we're losing. Who are they and, and what do we know about why they're disengaging? What I think we know or we expect we know is that a lot of it had to do with the sort of complexity of family lives, caretaking for younger siblings, caretaking for older family members. A lot of it had to do with the quality of online instruction. For some students, even the best quality instruction was going to be a hard lift. But for, for sort of the often the kind of mediocre or inconsistent online instruction, a lot of students just didn't see the value. So it was just that the system, uh, a system that was poorly designed, didn't necessarily get better for many students. I wanted to talk about the long-term impact of not completing your high school education about future prospects and earning potential and things like that, because it is possible to jump into the labor market at a fairly decent wage. And that wasn't the case a couple of years ago without a diploma. It's, it's something that is is, is really uh, surprising, a little bit unexpected. We, we're used to being able to talk to students about 
that to succeed in the labor market, you really need some kind of training post high school and a credential typically to go with that. We could explain that that didn't mean a BA. A BA is terrific and we want as many people to get a BA as possible. But yeah, you know, there's other ways to build skills, get credentials uh, and move towards a middle class job. What has happened now is that that message is much harder to convey when poised against the kind of benefits of being able to go right in a job that pays wages that we've never seen before. It's no small thing to be able to go work an entry-level job in the fast food industry and earn $20 an hour, $15 an hour to get a signing bonus, to get benefits. We can't begrudge anybody for doing that. But the challenge, of course, becomes how do we make the case that uh, while you're benefiting from that tight labor market, where you have these opportunities to earn money, how do you also think about the longer term? How do you think about building the kinds of skills that will allow you to protect yourself when the labor market uh, shifts, which it will inevitably do? So how do you talk about long-term job prospects with someone who's making more money than they thought they could a, a few years ago? You know, I think we've got to break apart a little bit what is a, a, a sort of trend towards better wages for entry-level work and recognize there's still many things that aren't great about those jobs. There's many uh, job quality issues, there's scheduling issues. You know, we're seeing the press is doing, I think, a pretty good job of covering the fact that even in this tight labor market, many entry-level workers are discovering they can't get full-time work schedules. Unfortunately, we can rely on some of the negatives of some of the labor market to sort of be a reminder to students that these jobs might not be the place to stay for the long run. The question becomes, how do we help them see that the system is, is, is eager to have them come back and go forward. We have 36 million adults who have some college, no degree. We have 50 plus million adults who just have uh, high school diplomas. All those folks to make it in the labor market are, are, are gonna wanna come back and get further education and training. But we have a system that was not really designed uh, for that student population. We often use the language of adult versus traditional age students. I'm not even sure that language works that well either. Because for so many traditional age students, they're working. They often have family responsibilities, whether that's their own children or, or parents or other relatives. I think we need to recognize here this is in some ways a little bit less about an adult uh, versus being an 18 to 24 year old and recognizing the institution has to be designed in a way that allows people uh, to work, to manage family, to do all the things that you need to do. At the same time, you can find the time and resources to invest in education and training. If you think about Philadelphia over the past 15 years, we have been on a long journey to ensure that there was a diverse set of options for students who left high school without a high school diploma or wanted to come back and, and achieve that secondary credential. This is Shakima Fulmer Townsend, the immediate past president and CEO of the Philadelphia Youth Network. PYN works with public and private strategic partners like Jeff's Human Services to create education and employment opportunities for youth and young adults. And what Martha Ross of the Brookings Institute, her report, A Decade Undone, estimates that the pandemic really undid 10 years of, of work, wow. which is wow. disheartening and scary for somebody mm -hmm. who has spent mm -hmm. the last 17 years of her, of her career working on a, on a similar challenge and seeing the progress. Prior to the pandemic, we were seeing our opportunity youth numbers going in the right direction. They were declining. People who are 16 to 24 who are 
disconnected from school and or work. We're making such great progress. And as a city, we were seeing those numbers decline because we had a rich ecosystem of alternate options for young people from the Opportunity Network schools to night school programs to a plethora of advanced training options in a a variety of sectors. I think two big things happen. One, just a disruption to the, the daily delivery of services and the way life had to be altered really challenged the nonprofit sector. And so as programs that were dependent on in-person instruction, programs that are dependent on a reliable number of staff members, COVID put all of those things in jeopardy in different ways. And also many organizations rely on a, a suite of, of different investors and the the financial stability to support nonprofits was also in jeopardy. So organizations that maybe were stringing different sources of, of income were now really strapped to do so. That creates a gap, a gap in services. It creates a gap in um, connection to young people and follow up for this population and support and continuity. So that led to disconnection from from programming and services. So how do we go about reengaging young people who disconnected? And, you know, how, how are you thinking about rebuilding the ecosystem and bringing people back together now? I think a couple of things are, are really important. We have to recognize that the pre-pandemic levels are going to be different. And I think that that means new strategies in terms of establishing relationships It's going to mean a level of outreach that has never been properly funded, at least in the work that we've done. When I think about systemic issues, I think funding is going to have to transition, especially if you are using funding that is heavily regulated. I think we have a major policy agenda that has to be established to really allow for innovation In that space, I think we're going to have to think much more intentionally about messaging and having credible messengers, particularly young people as credible messengers. I think we're going to have to let the young people really inform the current needs. And I think we're going to have to listen to the values-based orientation that we see really prevalent in this generation and make stronger cases for why their time should be invested with the resources that you have. We've typically looked at it in some ways. It it seems so clear, right? Of course you want to do this. And I I think that young people are saying not, not of course, not of course you're, you're, you're going to have to really understand me and my needs. I think tailoring and customized approaches which again, the type of resources sometimes does not allow for the level of flexibility we need. And so that creativity is going to be pivotal to establishing connection with young people and also connection across organizations in terms of the coordination that we had in the system. Where are the flexible resources going to come from? I hope that philanthropy is a little bit more courageous in terms of risk-taking because the next wave of strategies are untested. I appreciate the move to evidence-based and and promising practices. We're going to need some room to try some things. And I've been encouraged by what I saw, especially during the pandemic, when 
it was about crisis and the the number of funders and the ways in which money was combined and leveraged to get to the places where it was needed the most. I was very encouraged by that. My only hope and 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 prayer, quite frankly, was that people recognize that that's something that we could have done all along, right? The 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 willingness to be flexible, the the asking how this system doesn't work. Um, especially in the wake of the racial awakening that we experienced in this country, asking different questions and better questions about racial equity, particularly and systemic bias and institutional barriers, I think is the right step. I don't want us to stop that conversation as we pursue trying to go back to something. I don't think we need to go back. We have to go forward. It's why I like the work that we're currently doing. We have a project which is about advancing in healthcare and tech. It's our Skills Pathways project, of which Jez is a major partner. That work is centered around having the relationships with employers and having the conversations so that the training and the experiences are enhanced and tailored. I see the same conversation happening in community colleges all over the country. How can we build back from industry into the classroom and how do we do that really quickly because of the the workforce needs? Ownership and choice is going to be a, a critical skill for any service industry that it expects to succeed and thrive. Just the way employers have to pay attention to what employee needs are much more closely and be flexible and willing to adjust, I think the same expectations are going to be expected of services and, and particularly programs that, that target young people. One of those programs that are meant to target the 16 to 24-year-old demographic that Shakima mentioned is Jeff's E3 Center, which provides pathways to education and employment. Karima, who we spoke to earlier, told me about her experience at E3. I thought it was gonna be like a regular school. I came here and it's not even like that. Like, I stay in my lane, people stay in their lane. It's like, we just come here, we learn and we go home. It was a relief, I ain't even gonna lie. Smaller classes, less kids. It's not like how regular school is where it's overpopulated, no. It's like less class, less, less everything. It was like more of a relief. Like once I passed the GED, I swear nobody better not tell me I, I ain't did nothing right in my life. Cause I could have gave up when I was 18. I could have been like, I'm not going to school no more, but I didn't. I'm still here, 20, still trying to get my GED and you know finish school. That's how I know I changed. I came a long way. I want to thank my guests, Councilman Derek Green, Chauncey Lennon, Shakima Fulmer Townsend, and Karima. I also want to thank PWP Video for their assistance in the production of this podcast. They're great partners in creating media with a mission. For more of their work, visit pwpvideo.com. Our theme song was composed by Zach Wright. The show is produced by me, alongside my colleague John Colburn, also of Jeff's Human Services and Michael Schweisheimer and Pat Ganley of PWP Video. The show is skillfully edited by Pat. Follow us on social media at Jev's Human Services on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Kristen Rantanen. Until next time on Where Policy Meets People. <laughs>